All right, if you'll find Matthew chapter number six, just briefly, we're just going to touch on that for our context tonight. And then we're going to immediately turn to an Old Testament book and are going to see a connection between this thought tonight that we're going to deal with and Matthew chapter number six as we continue this journey through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, many of us probably uh, grew up in a time when the Lord's Prayer was just a part of our scripture reading. Uh, I know for me personally, just a little bit of a personal testimony, uh, until I did this uh, particular study myself, um, I had never really studied the Lord's Prayer. I had never had it taught to me. I had never heard it really preached as far as uh, what the really important uh, aspects that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. And as I've been studying this, and even as I set out a couple weeks ago, we started this, I was really unsure. Uh, I, was, I, I was even asking the Lord, I'm like, Lord, I don't really know how to teach this because I'm not really sure I know exactly uh, all that I need to know. And that's part of the journey. Uh, that's part of what uh, the Lord, I think, these Wednesday nights especially, it's a little bit different than our Sundays. Uh, these are the things that the Lord's teaching me right along with you. And I say all that because I don't have all the answers to this. I, there are still parts about this when we get to it. I'm still a little bit uh, taken back by how does this apply to me now? Uh, how am I supposed to pray because of what I'm seeing here? And, uh, but yet the principles that are here, uh, they are consistent. And as we've been reading this in Matthew 6, verse number 9, Jesus, as of, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at each one of these phrases. He said, after this manner... Therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Tonight we're going to look at that expression, hallowed be thy name. Now as a matter of a review, I remember I told us that this prayer consists of six petitions or six requests, six supplications. The first three of them, if we were to categorize them, the first three relate to the glory of God. In other words, what's in focus here, what's in view, is God's glory. Now, it doesn't mean that the remaining three don't have God's glory, but specifically, the prayer is designed to look to the glory of God. Not just looking, but to look to the glory of God without any regard for ourselves. Now, one of the hardest things about prayer is praying without regarding yourself. Does everybody understand what I'm saying by that? You're praying with no regard for yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that the prayer is not going to lead to a regard for yourself, but in these first three, Jesus is teaching his disciples, there are these three petitions that have nothing to do with you, and they have to do all with the glory of God. Hallowed be thy name is one of those. Now, when we get to the final three, those three will relate not just to our needs in general, but they relate to the very things which are necessary even for our salvation. In other words, they are part of who we are in Christ. This hallowed be thy name, the expression literally means, may thy, may thy name be sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. It means to be taken from one place and set somewhere else in its purest sense. 
So when we pray, hallowed be thy name, what that prayer is implying or asking is very simply, Lord, may your name be sanctified. May your name be set apart. Now let's kind of clarify some things. God doesn't need us to sanctify his name or hallow his name. He has already hallowed his own name. He's already set his name apart. So in prayer, here is an example of not telling God to do something that he hasn't already done. He's already done this. His name is already sanctified, whether you and I do it or not, much like our worship. God does not become God because we worship him, nor does the name of God become hallowed because we hallow it. He's already done that. He's already sanctified his own name. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, what we're doing is we are seeking the glory of God. Now, it's not to be separated from the rest of our faith in him, but we are separating his glory from our needs. We're separating our, our desires, and we're seeking only him. How would be thy name is a way of honoring the name of God. Now, this is kind of a practical statement, but none of us have a sufficient desire to promote the glory of God until we first forget ourselves. In other words, I can set out and say, I only want the glory of God to be seen here. But unless we forget ourselves, literally take ourselves out of the picture, and we raise our minds up to this reality, I'm only seeking God's greatness. I'm not seeking great things for myself. Now the word again, hallowed be, We'll break this expression up in two phrases. Hallowed be and then thy name. The phrase hallowed be, it, the Jews when they prayed, now think about Jesus as a Jew. He was teaching these 12 disciples who were Jews themselves. And what the Jews would pray, they would pray something like this. Let thy name be hallowed or let your name be sanctified by us. Sometimes the Jews would pray something like this, O Lord our God, before the eyes of all living. They would say, Let his great name be magnified and sanctified in the world, which he hath created according to his will. This is really something that is foreign to most of us. John Gill, in his commentary on the phrase, he has a, a, a section just on the phrase, thy name. And here's what he says about that. He says, by thy name, God meant he himself, the perfections of his nature, the several names by which he is known and which we are to think and speak of with holy reverence. By sanctifying his name is not meant making him holy, but acknowledging and declaring him to be holy and glorifying him and all of his perfections. He is sanctified by himself, by declaring himself to be holy, by glorifying his perfections and his works, by implanting grace and holiness in the hearts of his people, by restoring the purity of his worship, 
by diffusing the knowledge of himself in the world and by taking vengeance on the wicked. He is sanctified by others when they fear him, believe in him, call upon his name, use it reverently, submit to his will, acknowledge his mercies, regard his commands and ordinances, and live a holy life and conversation, all which is earnestly desired by truly gracious souls. So there is this connection. There's an inseparable connection between the sanctification of God's name and his kingdom. The very next phrase we'll look at next week, how it would be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The first three petitions are inseparably connected. In other words, the prayer is not about his name being hallowed without a thinking upon his kingdom or his will. In other words, they're not just taken one by one. They are a connected thought. They're inseparable. They have to remain together. So that when we think about the hallowing of God's name, we cannot forget his kingdom and we cannot forget his will. Sanctification of God's name is always connected with his kingdom and the best part or the most blessed part of his kingdom is his will being done. I told you the secret to prayer is actually accepting God's will. That's the secret to prayer. Mature prayer is not about getting what you want. Mature prayer is about accepting God's will. Now, sometimes you are going to get exactly what you asked for, okay? Sometimes you're going to get exactly to a T your exact prayer. But do you realize you did not get that? You would not have received that had that not been according to his will. So when you receive something, here's what you can say. I can say this was according to God's will. Now, sometimes, what about the other? What if he doesn't answer? the way you asked. Was God's will still done? Yes, it was still done. There's this idea that God's will is sometimes not done or that God's will is sometimes hindered. I can't find anywhere scripturally where God is actually hindered and his will is not done. Now, I can find situations where it looks like it's not going, humanly speaking, the right way. But God always has something to say about that. So when we think about the howling or this, this howling of his name, and you've got that in your handout, just very basic thoughts here. Our prayer must be, may your name be sanctified by and through us. So let's talk a little bit about this howling or sanctifying the name in a more practical way. Number one, the howling or sanctifying of the name of God means to give unto the Lord the glory that is due unto his name. The hallowing or sanctifying the name of God means to give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Now, knowing what we know, that God's name is already hallowed, we're not making his name holy or righteous or perfect. We're acknowledging what he's already declared and made it to be. You have a reference there to 1 Kings chapter number 9. If you turn back there with me, 1 Kings chapter number 9, we're going to look at the first nine verses of this, and we're going to do it as it's laid out there in your handout, so it'll be a little bit uh, easier to follow. 
First Kings chapter number 9 seems like an unlikely, to pl- unlikely place to go to deal with the Lord's Prayer. However, in this prayer or this section of Scripture that mentions the name Solomon, I want you to see the principle that is found in verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Now the first thing as a student of the Bible is you ask yourself the question. What's the obvious question? What prayer is he talking about? See, he just says, I've heard your prayer. Which prayer is he talking about? In the true context of the scriptures, he's talking about the prayer that is found in chapter number eight of 1 Kings. Now, we're not going to cover all of this, but I want you to go over to 1 Kings chapter eight and look at verse number 22. And you can see 1 Kings chapter number eight is 66 verses. We're not going to touch all this. I'm just going to show you this is part of the prayer that the Lord is mentioning to Solomon as having answered. Verse 22, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hand towards heaven. That is a posture of prayer, okay? Doesn't mean you have to do that, but it's a posture of prayer. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept, thy, has kept with thy servant David my father, that thou promised him, thou spakest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Therefore, now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father, that thou had promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, now watch this, my name shall be there that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. Now this may seem insignificant to us, but what Solomon was asking for, primarily in his prayer, was that God's name would be glorified. God's name would be elevated. Solomon doesn't really ask for anything himself. 
Solomon is giving the Lord the glory that is due unto him. If you were to read all of 1 Kings chapter number 8, you would find a repetition of that word, my name. And you would find the word that is hallowed, meaning that same thing. There is this complete picture of what Solomon, as he prays, he is praying with the glory of God in mind. Now, when we pray, how do we hallow his name? Well, first of all, we pray without giving man even the slightest possibility of irreverence. In other words, when we pray, it ought to be in a reverential manner. So that if a person on the outside is listening to that prayer, they are not hearing irreverence or giving that individual any reason to think any less of God. Now, what is the opposite of howling the name of God? It's to profane it. Now, in our, in our modern English, profanity or to be profane usually means what? A cuss word. Or it means something that's just not a good word. But literally, biblically, and even in our world today, the word profane literally means to corrupt. It means to defile. So the opposite of hallowing the name of God is what? It's profaning the name of God. Now, how could I profane the name of God? I can profane the name of God by speaking disrespectfully of his majesty. Let me give you a prime example. When a person refers to God as the man upstairs, you have profaned the name of God. Now, that may seem insignificant. And we may say, what's the big deal? At least some people have said this, well, at least they're acknowledging there's a God. No, biblically speaking, that would be an example of profaning the name of God. Uh, to take the Lord's name in vain would be to profane the name of God. And that doesn't just mean you use it as a cuss word. To profane it means to bring it down, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, to bring it down and make his name like it's something common, like it's an everyday name, like his name is no greater uh, than a common uh, man's name, for example. That's to profane the name of God. So when we talk about God, we're talking about a God whose name is holy. His name is righteousness, and that is permanent. His name will always be a picture of where holiness dwells. Now, what's going to happen and what has happened in our world today? We see an intentional attempt, and I'm saying this, I'm saying it intentionally, an intentional attempt to profane the name of God. What you see happening in entertainment is not accidental. It's intentional. The intent is to profane the name of God. Now, here's the, here's the, the promise we have. No matter what sinful man does to the name of God, no matter what they attempt to do, they cannot take away from the majesty of God's name. But they can be guilty of profaning it. Man in his depravity will find himself attempting to dishonor and pollute the name of God by his own wickedness. So what is this, this initial thought about hallowing the name? The substance of the petition of hallowed be thy name is praying that the glory of God would shine even in the midst of a dark world. 
That even as things grow darker, God's righteousness, God's wisdom, God's obedience, God's holiness would be shown upon, it would shine forth. That's the idea. The highest dishonor that can be done to God and his name is unbelief. Now, we don't think about this, but to not believe God is to profane his name. Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm not trying to offend any of us, although it might. But when we pray in unbelief, you're profaning the name of God. When I go to the Lord and I don't really believe God for what I'm asking, I don't believe God for what I'm saying, I'm just praying because it's what I do at this appointed hour. That's a form of profaning his name because it's unbelief. Now, again, it's not intended to make us feel guilty, but it is a point that what we're talking about here is it's not just about the simple things we can think about. Number two, there's nothing more disgraceful than to misrepresent the name of God or to treat his name as common. Okay, there's nothing more disgraceful than to misrepresent the name of God or to treat his name as common. I'm finding in the modern church movement that what people are believing you need to do in order to reach people is you've got to bring down, bring it down a notch. It, it's too serious. Uh, I'm finding this, I found this in youth work. Just have fun with them. It, it, it's, it's, their life's too serious already. Don't, church shouldn't be a serious thing. Actually, it is. It actually, it, studying the Word of God is a serious thing. Prayer is a serious thing. To misrepresent the name of God is to misrepresent who He is. It's to show ingratitude for what He's done. Now, again, we don't take away His glory, but we distort the glory of God in His name if we make His name as nothing more than common. Now, go back to your text in 1 Kings, because this is dealt with chapter 9, verse 4. Solomon had already mentioned about uh, his, the, the howling of the house. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever as I promised to David thy father saying, there is not fail thee, there shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Now, to understand really what that, where that comes from and why this isn't the first time it's mentioned, go back to the book of Leviticus 22, which there's, that reference is given to you as well. And I want you to see this because this is part of what we would refer to as part of the law. It was part of what was to be honored. Leviticus 22, verse number 31. The Bible tells us, Therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you, that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. 
It's interesting that in the book of Leviticus, the word profane is used there, that word to pollute or defile. To pollute or to defile the name of God is to treat his name as something common. Those regulations that were given in Leviticus 22 were given to prevent dishonor to God. That's the whole purpose of them. Hallowed, again, to be set apart. To set something apart means you are, in its, in its purest essence, you are regarding it as distinct from anything but ordinary and anything but mundane. I'll tell you what really bothers me is people that when you talk about God, they claim to be believers, but when you talk, have a, a God conversation, it seems as if you're boring them. Have you experienced this? I mean, this is what happened. You bring up the name of God and suddenly it's like anything else in the world's more important. Now, what's really sad is not when that happens to an unbeliever, but when you're having a conversation with another person who claims to be a believer and you can tell they are bored to tears. You're talking about God again. That happens more often than we think because we're beginning to see God as nothing more than just something ordinary. He's like the average run of the mill. God's nothing special. But yet, that's what, these, that's what these ordinances were given in Leviticus was so that dishonor to God would not happen. Now, again, I understand the full context of this. He was talking to, all, he was talking to the priests. He was talking to those Old Testament priests. They had to be without blemish. Without, they, they had to go through all of the, the ceremonies. But the principles are there. And again, so even if we were to live in a world where everybody around you was ungodly and in some kind of a rage, God's name is still to be treated as holy and to be revered. It should not be treated as common. The psalmist in Psalm 48.10 said this, According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. You see, wherever God has made himself known, his perfections have been displayed, his power, his goodness, his wisdom, his justice, his mercy, truth. If we know those things, we have an obligation and a responsibility to praise him for that. So let's say nobody on earth is left howling the name of God. What do we do? We hallow his name in prayer. You say, what if nobody hears me? We hallow his name in prayer. We've talked about this a little bit already. All prayer is not vocal and public. Matter of fact, most of your prayer life is between you and God and you and God alone. They don't, you, nobody else knows what you're praying. God didn't have in mind here. Now, when you're in a group of congregation... How will my name in front of everybody else so you don't distort my name? You know, you can distort the name of God in your own private prayer closet. You could be praying by yourself and praying wrong. You could be treating God's name as something common. Other people don't have to hear it. And that's really, that's, these, are, these are some deep truths tonight. These are, <laughs> these, are not, these are not entry level. These are not Bible 101 principles. These are things that I think we ought to know and be aware of. The name of God throughout Scripture is taken very seriously. There is nowhere where that phrase, my name, we can look at it and say, well, that can be taken lightly. 
The name of God was something that was a picture of who God himself is. Number three, the believer's desire must be that God receives the honor that is due unto his name and that men may never speak of him without the greatest reverence. Okay? The believer's desire must be that God receives the honor that is due unto his name and that men may never think or speak of him without the greatest reverence. Back in our text, 1 Kings 9, 7. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them and this house which I have hallowed for my name. Will I cast out of my sight and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. What does it mean to be a proverb? It's interesting. To be a proverb means to be a subject of teaching. It means to be the recipient or the illustration. And he's saying, if you do those things, and Israel, if you do not hallow my name, I will use Israel as a proverb. I will use them as a means of teaching the consequences of not hallowing my name. Now, we're all very quick myself included sometimes, to read through the Old Testament and say, what in the world was wrong with Israel? Israel had every opportunity. And again, don't blame this. Don't blame the blinding of God's, that God's blinding their eyes is why they acted that way. Don't lose sight of the fact that Israel was making choices. They were acting upon their own free will. They were disobeying God. They were, they were not believing him. God used them as an illustration to show what happens. They became an object of God's scorn. You say that today, that the God of the Old Testament no longer exists. We want the God of the New Testament. The same God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. A man yesterday or the other day was pointing this out, and he was interesting. He said, if you actually follow the, he said, interesting study is follow the words of Jesus and find how many times Jesus himself talked about wrath. See, New Testament Christianity today or modern Christianity is, is the Old Testament's not any good anymore. We just want the loving Jesus of the New Testament. Well, I've got news for you. If you study the New Testament, you're going to find out that Jesus wasn't always so quote unquote loving all the time. I mean, he talks about things simply like if, if your right eye offends you, if your hand cuts your hand. I mean, these, these are not loving pictures. This is pictures of how serious it is. He speaks about, uh, he sp- speaks about hell. He, he gives the parable of, of, of Lazarus and the rich man. So people, when they say, I, I don't like that angry God in the Old Testament... If you treat God as an angry God in the Old Testament and the nice God, Jesus, in the New Testament, I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen. You are going to make the name of God common and you're going to treat it without reverence. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening even in our churches today. Churches have gotten so casual about God that they speak his name as if it's just a common name. That it's something that's not really worthy So when we think about this, we've already talked about the opposite of reverence is profanity. That's always been common in the world. It's becoming prevalent now. I mean, the place I don't want to find the name of God being profaned is in the church, right? That's the last place I hope to find it. 
But when we pray, the necessity of that prayer is, is that his name would be hallowed, and that should be our constant petition. God, may your name be hallowed. May I never give a reason to distort who you are. Now, again, I'm not talking about some kind of a perfect life because you're not going to be able to live a perfect life. God's going to manifest himself whether we do it rightly or not. How does God manifest himself? God manifests himself by his word. He manifests himself in his works. He has constantly revealed who he is. You and I have no excuse tonight to say, I don't really know who God is because God's given us all we need to know to know him. You really should never, unless you're talking about somebody who was just newly converted, you should never meet an ignorant believer who says, I don't know these things about God. Why? Because there should be such a thirst and a hunger for the things of God that after you're converted, that ought to just be a hunger that cannot be, it can't be satisfied and a thirst that can't be quenched. You're constantly wanting to know more about God. So number four, the name of God is rightly hallowed only when it is separated from all other names. His name alone must be glorified. Verses 8 and 9 of 1 Kings 9. And at this house, which is high, every one that passeth by it shall be astonished and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? In other words, what was going to happen is Israel's being made a proverb for their failure to hallow the name of God. He says, everyone that passes by is going to look and say, why did God do this? And here's the answer. And they shall answer because they forsook the Lord, their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have taken hold upon other gods and have worshiped them and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. You see, there's this idea that God is just a God of many gods. Israel, here's what I think, here's what I believe the Bible teaches about Israel. Israel always had a belief that they're the almighty God. In other words, they never stopped totally believing in him. But the problem is, is they mingled the true God with all the other gods. That's a failure to hallow his name. They mingled him and treated him as if he was just another God and he wasn't to be separate. That's what, again, that's what the word sanctified means. That's what the word hallowed means. It means to set him apart. It's interesting that he actually uses the phrase or uses the story. They forsook the Lord their God who brought forth their fathers out of the land of, the, of Egypt. If anyone had a reason to not forsake the name of God, it would have been Israel because of what he did bringing them out of Egypt. What should have been happening is they should have had nothing but praise for this God, and they should have been settled in the reality there's only one God. It's that God who delivered us out of Egypt. Now today, we don't, if I was to go around this room, and I don't care how many, people, how many believers were in this room, and I was to say, how many of you worship more than one God? I don't think anybody would say, I do. But the gods of today are not so much gods that I think, like Israel, they're things that we have kind of just treated as uh, the most important thing. The gods of comfort, the gods of what we think is, we need to survive, 
We, we've, we seek God only when all of our other plans fail. You know, the, the, some people's prayer life never gets really strong until they realize I've run out of all of my plans and schemes. So praying is the last thing they do. Instead of praying first, they pray last because now they get to the end of themselves and they say, everything I thought I could fix, that's trying to be your own God, to be honest. Trying to fix your own issues and fix your own problems and come to your own conclusions. And we might say, well, that's nothing like what Israel was doing. I mean, Israel was building, they were building idols and they were building altars. Folks, there has never been, in believing in Christian circles, there's never been more altars to false gods than there are at this point in history. And you say, what do those gods look like? You've got to talk to the people. People have gods of everything. They, they serve those things more than they serve the God of the universe. They, 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 have, they have the gods of, 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 of money. They have the gods of, of things. And as sad as it is, and you know, we, we, are, we believe in the power, we believe in, in worshiping together, we believe in keeping our families together, but do you know you can even make your family your God? It can become more important than God himself. And it's a dangerous place to be. And just on that note, I've, I've watched churches that are trying to do what we're doing actually have that happen to where they got so obsessed with family that they forgot God. And we can't do that. And our prayers are about God's glory. Our prayers are about praising God for what He's done. Nothing ought to hinder us from celebrating and proclaiming the praises of God for every aspect of who he is. We ought to praise God that he is a God of wrath. We ought to praise God that he is a God of mercy. Don't be guilty of giving God more praise for his love than for his wrath and his justice. It's easy to praise God for his love. That song that we sing, and I said it, we need to be reminded of that. That song I asked the Lord that I might grow, written by John Newton, who John Newton's own testimony would have been, I was the most wicked, vile man that ever lived and ever walked the face of this earth because of his former life, what he used to do. And yet, it was through those hardships and through those troubles and through those struggles. By the way, that's not a song that was written just to grab a hold of our heartstrings. That was written from the heart of a man who truly found, the, found out that he really needed to understand what God was doing and how God was working in his life. It's a testimony of a man who thought, when I approach God, here's how God's going to answer me. And that song talks about, I prayed thinking, here's what God would do, but yet God did the opposite. He brought me low. And yet, that was a cause to praise him because he brought me into a place where now I began to understand who God really is. Our Lord teaching his disciples to pray implies that there's a, there ought to be a desire every time we pray that anything that is impure that could pollute the Lord's name would die. Anything that obscures or darkens his glory would not be present. 
The prayer of every saint, the prayer of every believer ought to pray that the majesty of God is clearly displayed, clearly seen. Now, we might say today, is this really a, ser- is this really a serious matter? Is it a serious thing when we fail to hallow the name of God? I believe if you look at the examples, and this 1 Kings chapter 9 is just one example, you can find account after account after account of where they failed to give hallowing God's name that the consequences were the same. We need to do all we can to sanctify the name of God, not just in our prayer, but in our daily lives. Jesus was not just teaching them, hey, when you pray, do these things. He was teaching them that this is not just a matter of what you do when you pray. This is a matter of what you do every day. This is your life. When I go out into my place of employment or I go into my school or I go into other activities, I go into even social environments, am I giving any reason to profane the name of God? Am I profaning the name of God through my actions? But when we pray, especially asking ourselves the question, when I'm praying, is it really God's glory that I'm seeking or is it my desires that I want? You know, people have asked, and I'm going to be very honest with this group because Wednesday nights is just a whole different thing. People have asked, why don't we have a traditional prayer meeting where we're listing everybody's health problems? It's intentional. What I've seen happen, until we become very mature in our prayer, we become very self-centered about everything going on. And prayer meetings become, take away this ailment, take away this ailment, relieve this, make this better. You realize sometimes God is working in all those situations, and even if someone doesn't get better, doesn't mean God's not good. And it becomes a prayer list of, God, here's all the things I want. Now, again, Jesus is not teaching his disciples, don't ask for anything, because when we get to the last three, he's specifically going to mention some of those things. But we got to keep in mind that we, we, we don't want to be tempted to say that all my prayer life is about is getting something. When you, when you hear and you're praying amongst everybody who really has reached a time when maturity as a church, and this is going to happen sometime in the life of this church, if this church continues to press forward, where we will have prayer meetings and you will see the maturity of prayer where this, the central focus is the glory of God. And I'm going to tell you, in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, I have never truly seen it happen to where I've actually seen an entire, I've heard about it, but actually been in a group where the the glory of God in prayer was the main desire. You say, are you calling us immature? I'm calling us all a little bit where we don't really, I'm even calling myself in that. Sometimes in my own personal prayer, I'm very selfish. I'm very self-centered. Lots of deliver me, lots of make things better, take away my problems, take away my, you know, and it's, it's, it's something that as a church, as we grow and we, we learn, these are some of these principles. Jesus was not teaching these disciples, hey, just rattle off these words when you pray. Sports teams use this prayer almost every, before every game, and they end games with it. Here's the problem. of them have no idea what they're praying or why they're even praying. It's just what they do. 
And what they're asking for is they're asking for God's protection or even, even a little bit more crazy that God might give them a win. The problem is, is that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand this is more than just praying about ask, praying without, praying, asking for things. It's about praying for God's glory to be seen. So we've got a lot more to learn about this. So next week, uh, we'll deal with that phrase, thy kingdom come. Uh, what in the world does that mean? And why is that important for us? All right.